0: Boston Loose Baseball is back in the offseason here in early December. Trying to warm you up this winter with some round ball talk. The Nationals have made some moves. They are moving and shaking. Kind of. We will be breaking it all down. Everything that's been going on at the winter meetings. And we'll do it right now. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball. I'm Grant Paulson, joined as always by Toby Altizer. Producer Darius Dameron is alongside. Why don't we begin with Juan Soto being traded to the Yankees? And from a Nationals perspective, the realization of just how different his trade value was one and a half seasons ago to right now, when the Nationals got one of the great packages in the history of trade compensation in North American sports with all of the young talent they infused into their system. One of the game's best prospects, James Wood, set to graduate early this season. We've already seen their new shortstop, Abrams, and their new top lefty, Mackenzie Gore. Arlene Susana and Robert Hassel are still making their way to the majors, even though Hassel has stepped back as a prospect. But what a package that was. Meanwhile, I thought the trade, Toby, for both teams, the Yankees, made a lot of sense. You got Juan Soto for a year. You'll try to show him that he wants to be a Yankee after this season when he hits the market, you got a chance to win a World Series this year by adding one of the great offensive players in the game right now and, and ultimately maybe ever the way he takes pitches, draws walks, get on base in this era. And for the Padres, they recouped as much as they could. They took two swings of the three they were projected to to win a World Series with Soto. They got to the NLCS in year one. Year two was a huge failure. They didn't make the playoffs. And now they're doing what the Nats did, where they're kind of saying to themselves, all right, we're definitely not going to resign him. We probably have to trade him as soon as possible to get the most back. And they got five players. They got four arms, most of which are going to help them at the major league level, maybe all four of them this season. So I liked the idea for the Padres, but what they gave up for Soto versus what they got for him, obviously night and day. And another reminder that the Nationals did the right thing by trading him when they did.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense for both teams because if you look at the Yankees... This isn't your typical Yankees move. It usually isn't something where they're trading all these guys to go get their guys. It's usually signing them in free agency. But I think you almost get a trial run to show Juan Soto why he should stick around in pinstripes, which I think is a good idea for them. And they also have a team ready to compete. So you plug Soto in the two, three, four hole, whatever however they decide to orient their lineup and you've already got another world series contender. You still got Garrett Cole, you still got Aaron judge. So I think it makes sense for the Yankees and they didn't have to give up too, too much. Right. I mean, it's, it's not like they gave up Jason Dominguez. It's not like they gave up, you know, one of their top dudes and, they didn't really have to mortgage anything on the major league roster either. So I think if you're the Yankees, it's a it's a great move because you're going to be one of the few teams that has a realistic chance to keep him, anyways in free agency. So go ahead and get them accustomed to playing there. And, you know, maybe he has a career year with the short porch at Yankee Stadium. So we'll see with that. But for the Padres, yeah, I mean, they, they essentially had to redo the contract with Manny Machado. They've got Xander Bogarts. They've got some stars still but they weren't going to be able to keep Juan Soto as well. I mean, we saw the report that they had to take out a loan just to do the payroll things at the end of the year. So it was clear they weren't going to be paying Juan Soto. So they had to move on. And again, it just shows you what a smart move and shrewd move it was by Mike Rizzo because the reality is if Juan Soto was on this baseball team for the last year and a half, how many more games do they win? 15 20 over two years so congratulations you're a little closer to 500 you're not a playoff team and so when you're in that sort of a situation and you can bring in the talent that Rizzo did it shows how much better it is and now the Padres were in a spot where similar to the Nationals they looked ahead saw they weren't going to re-sign them and they had to move on and get whatever they could get and it wasn't nearly the return that the Nationals got now We'll see how it helps out the Padres. Like I said, they've still got talent on that team, so that's not to say that the Padres are just terrible, but when you look at the way that it reset the National system, really reset the Nationals organization by making one trade that brought in so much talent as opposed to what the Padres got where, yeah, it might bolster their pitching staff, but it didn't reset their entire team like the Nationals did. I think it just once again shows you that it was a smart move, and now I think... For any of the doubters, any of the people that were not on board with trading Juan Soto in the first place, as a Nationals fan, I think this has to open your eyes that it was the right move. And, you know, I don't think there's any real chance you could come back in free agency next year. I think that'd be a fun story if that were to be something that happened. But the reality is you've got the possibility of having your franchise shortstop, franchise at least a top two pitcher is what we project him to be in the rotation of Mackenzie Gore and a possible MVP type bats in James Wood. all those guys coming from it. And I don't know that the Yankees got any player of that sort of caliber. So again, just it's awesome to see where the nationals are. And I mean, this is why we were talking about Mike Rizzo when his you know contract was up, making those sorts of moves are what earn you new contracts and especially seeing what happened now. So, I mean, and it's, tr- it's going to be crazy to see him in pinstripes though. It will be. We can get into that in a second.
0: I mean, but the trade they made, I I viewed it as a no-brainer at the time. And I was working, if you go back and listen to all of our pods before and after, from the perspective that they unequivocally and irrefutably were not going to be able to re-sign him. Mm -hmm. When he turned down the 440, and I had the, the benefit of having a lot of conversations with people with the organization and on the Soto side as well. And I just, based on all those discussions, realized, OK, this is not going to end with a contract. If it was, then keep him and he can be the centerpiece for your next championship iteration years down the road. But when it wasn't going to and he was going to hit free agency after this season and they were going into this downward spiral where they you know, clearly weren't going to be spending and we're going to be rebuilding. It was just the ultimate no-brainer. It was the most obvious thing that they had to do, and fans were going to be upset, and you know that fans are going to be misguided when they hear that the guy who they love is being traded. I have his jersey in my closet, too, by the way. Uh, He's my favorite player in baseball, too, by the way. Like, I get it totally. I understand. Every kid's favorite player was Juan Soto. There's value in keeping him. Like, all of these things can be true, and yet they did not only the right thing, but the only thing that they could have and should have done specific to the Padres. I mean, people were, were beaten up on them yesterday just because of what they gave up and then what they got back. But that was such a good deal for them. I thought yesterday, to be completely honest with you, like I was actually really impressed because you're trading what is just one year of Soto. Who's almost certainly not going to resign with the Yankees. I would imagine, but they flipped him uh, and, and losing Grisham as well, who has some value. I think that was more cost cutting as you talked about. But Michael King is a legit arm. He's mostly been a reliever. He started a little bit. It's long been speculated by the analytics community that he's a guy that could and should start and could be potentially, if nothing else, like a really good starter two times through the order, through five or six innings. Um, But I want to see him in that role. I think that's a a really nice find for the Padres. This prospect they got back, Drew Thorpe, is legit. Uh, One of the best pitchers in the Yankee system. Uh, he had a sub-one whip as a starter last year. I mean, that's like lights-out closer base runners' averages per inning. Uh, he he has been nasty, high strikeout rate. Batting average against, I think, was like 200 on the nose. I mean, he is legit. He was pitching in A. They've seen Vasquez, Randy Vasquez, and Johnny Brito in the big leagues, and both have had success and made some good starts. And then you add to that the value of Vasquez, Brito, and the innings they'll give you either back of the rotation or Penn, and Higashioska. I just thought it was a no-brainer. From the Yankees' perspective, look, you got the bell of the ball here. I mean, for a season now, you've got a lineup that was bad last year that desperately needed help, and they have this week traded for Alex Verdugo, who's going to play right field, and now Soto, who they're going to put in left field. The only thing I don't like about this is that Judge is going to play center every day, Mm -hmm. and I think the wear and tear on his body, Toby, as a huge guy, like I talk about this with James Wood a lot. When you're when you're 6'7", like James Wood can play center. You and I both saw it. He can fly. He can track balls. He can do everything. You don't want him to play center because center field is such a difficult position running around on the legs, you know, pulling up and stopping because other guys are angling over and starting stopping, running into the wall occasionally. You really would rather your big guys play the corner. It's just so much easier and less wear and tear. So I don't love that for Judge in terms of trying to keep him healthy. Maybe they're baking in that John Carlos Stanton definitely won't be healthy all year. So, you know, you slot Soto or Judge or, you know, occasionally into the DH role or something. I'm not sure. But uh, bottom line is uh, what an amazing addition. I was thinking about it. I was like, well, Soto in that ballpark with the short porch and right, that that could be 40-plus homers where I don't view him as a 40-home run guy really. And then you think about it. Honestly, he's not, he doesn't really pull the ball that often when he's going well. It's center and left. So, like, I looked up the baseball savant metrics. He hit 35 home runs or whatever it was. I think it was 35 on the nose last year. Uh, in New York at Yankee Stadium, like all the same swings and the same distances, he would have hit 27 home runs. So, he's actually not like tailor made for that ballpark as much as I would have thought. Uh, but I, I still, I mean, it's going to be, you know, 470 on base, all the walks. He's going to get a bunch of big hits for them in huge spots. He's going to hit 33, 34 home runs maybe. Like It's, it's going to be cool to see.
1: Yeah, it'll be the first time in my life that I'll cheer for the Yankees for about, what, three or four A.B.s a night? That's about it. But <laughs> it'll be the first time in my life that I'll care what's going on in the pinstripes and have a rooting interest. But, yeah, I mean, it's going to be weird to see him there. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to see what it all entails. But, I mean, again, it's just – the excitement for Soto and all the stuff that surrounds it doesn't really touch right now. What I feel for James Wood and Gore and Abrams and those guys.
0: One thing I wanted to run by you, Toby and something that came up on my DC show with Danny that I find interesting. Um, From a nationals fan perspective, Soto moves on. Now he's a Yankee. This idea of, Does playing for more teams kind of water down a guy's greatness or make it, you know, when you're talking about these Hall of Fame talents, do you feel any differently or maybe less reverence when a guy bounces around like what Max has done at the end of his career? He's played on six teams now. Diamondbacks, Tigers, Nationals, Dodgers. Mets Rangers right Soto because he doesn't want to sign or or Boris doesn't want him to sign whichever you prefer like he's gone from possibly just staying in Washington for his whole career or maybe going to free agency and being with two teams forever like he's now Washington the Padres the Yankees and maybe another team next year like it could be a three teams in a couple seasons kind of guy do you feel any differently about great players just when they bounce all over the place does it water it down at all for you? It does feel funny. Right. I mean, it's when you think of the great
1: players and especially like a Derek Jeter. Right. I mean, one team, it kind of seems like it adds to the mystique. But at the same point, it's going to feel like this at the beginning for Soto. But the reality is he's going to hit free agency next year. He's going to be 26 years old. And wherever he signs, he's probably going to finish his career with, right? He's going to get like a 10-year deal or, you know, like a Harper, a 13-year deal. So he's probably going to end up playing there. So for right now, for Juan Soto, it's like, wow, three teams in two years. It's kind of crazy. But then wherever he ends up deciding to go, whether it's staying with the Yankees, going somewhere else, that's probably where he's going to be remembered. I mean, think about another sports analogy. Think about Shaq. Right. I mean, he played for so many different teams, but you know, growing up, I didn't get to watch him with the Lakers. But when I think of Shaq, I think of the Lakers, right? You think of where he's most dominant or maybe where he spends the most time. I think for Soto, I don't know that it really waters down his greatness though. Right. I mean, he's going to go somewhere else and spend the majority of his career and maybe that's maybe more of where he's remembered, but I don't think it waters down greatness with a guy like a Juan Soto. It's different if it's a guy like Max at the end of his career, but even so, I think Max is still pitching fairly well. It's not the same guy that we saw in the curly W, but you know, he, he's still pitching fairly well. But I don't know that it waters it down, but it is it's odd to see when you have a superstar like Juan Soto, like one of the best young hitters we've ever seen in Major League Baseball, and he's about to suit up for his third team in three years.
0: Yeah, to me, it just feels like there, there's, it makes me think there's a value to, to re-upping, or, and I don't mean with the Nationals specifically, but to re-signing. I just, when you think of guys that pinball around to a bunch of teams, there's this journeyman feel to you're not very good, no one wants to keep you kind of thing. Not you're the best and everybody wants to keep you, but because you're so valuable and you don't want to stay there necessarily, uh, they have to get rid of you. So it's, it's just a weird thing.
1: Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. Learn more at marines.com. Long gone.
0: Uh, All right, let's get to the players that the Nationals have actually added so we can go through one by one here, starting with uh, Juan Yepez, who they've picked up here on the cheap and added. He's a 25-year-old Venezuelan player. He was in the Cardinals organization, uh, made his debut in May of 2022 as a 24-year-old. DH first baseman type he actually in 2023 uh, didn't play very well at the major league level and kind of went back and forth was uh, more in triple a than in the big leagues but in 2022 when he got called up and played for the Cardinals he played about a half a season in the show 76 games about 200 plate appearances so really more I would say of like a third of a season But he hit almost 280 with a 920 OPS, and he had 16 home runs and 188 at-bats. That is big-time power being displayed. Uh, You do some quick math there. You know, that's a homer every 11 or so at-bats. So if you were to play a full season, let's just say you had 600 at-bats playing every day, you know, that's a 54-home run season for Juan Yipez. So he showed major home run power in 22. It was a mess in 23 28 games, 65 plate appearances, got off to a slow start, and then they kind of moved on and had other options. Hit just 180 in the majors with a 540 OPS. Uh, but in A, we have seen him play at a high level and do some pretty good things. You know, at the 3A level, we saw him in 2022 when he was going well, have a 920 OPS with um, 16 home runs. He um in the you know national league uh when he got sent down from the nl to the uh, international league i should say in 2023 it, it wasn't nearly as good he hit about 250 with a, a 730 ops so i guess first things first what's your take on trying to roll the dice and see if you can catch her some lightning in a bottle some power in a bottle with juan yapez
1: Yeah. So two things real quick. So I saw that Mike Rizzo was on MLB network and said that he didn't want to block any prospects, which I think is the right approach. So don't expect some big name signing, which we could have said that anyways, because they don't look like they want to spend much money, but don't expect them to spend crazy at a position like a third base or the outfield, you know, where you would think that they'd need to fill some holes. Don't expect them to do that because if James Wood comes out in spring training and shows, he should be on the opening day roster, they want to have a spot for him or Brady House or Trey Lipscomb or Yo Yo Morales, whoever you want to name, Dylan Cruz. If they show, hey, I should be a part of this thing pretty early on, then they don't want to have a spot taken up by somebody they're paying $8 million. So, I mean, that's why we'll get to Senzel, some of the other one. It's kind of, I wouldn't say Candelario like, because Candelario was more of a gamble, but you kind of knew a little bit more. I think these guys are maybe a little more of that gamble. We're hoping you can hit on some of the upside. But back to Yepes. I think he gives you an opportunity to have a platoon at first base where apparently Meneses was dealing with an injury this past season, and that's why he didn't play as much in the field. At least that's what Rizzo had said. So if that's the case, maybe he's going to be the right-hander when they're facing a lefty. He'll be in the lineup as a DH most days, but if they want to take Yepes out, because if you look at his career stats, at least in the bigs, his splits, He's a much better hitter. He's a left-handed bat. He's a much better hitter against righties, which would be expected. A 733 OPS against righties versus a 637 against lefties. So he's someone that maybe you can platoon with him and get him into the lineup against righties and play first base over there. I think he's played a little of the corner outfield as well. So I think it just gives you an option at first base because if there's one thing in the system right now the Nationals don't have a lot of, it is first baseman. So, you know, taking a chance on a guy with some power is good too, because this team lacked power. I mean, the reality is Manessis was supposed to be your home run hitter last year, and he struggled in that department. There really weren't home run hitters on this ball club. So, you know, getting a guy with just raw power, I think is a good idea. I mean, they tried the idea of the defensive first baseman with not lots of pop and I think it helped in the development of some of the young guys. But at some point, you got to get some offense out of that position. So it'll be interesting to see what he can do. But I I, I think that's a – I like
0: these kinds of gambles by Rizzo. Yeah, so a couple of things on maybe how they'll use him, right? I He signed a minor league deal. So by signing a minor league deal, it makes you think he'll be fighting a little bit of an uphill battle early mm-hmm. in the year to get to the major leagues. I've seen some speculation from some of the Nats beat <clears throat> maybe he becomes Matt Adams this year. Remember Matt Adams was kind of their power hitting starting first baseman at the triple a level at Rochester last season. And the idea was if anything happened to Manessas, he was insurance, you know, that that's major league caliber power that you could plug in and at least get some run production from, you're not going to get great at bats. You're not going to get a high batting average necessarily. I think Yepes could kind of be that honestly, which was, you know, a guy that starts for the most part at first base, does some DHing, but plays mostly at the AAA level. And then, you know, when and if they need help, they call him to the big league. So I'm not convinced he'll be a mainstay with the major leagues. Now, you mentioned the reverse splits and the fact that he had some success against lefties. I'm a little bit surprised they didn't go get a left-handed hitting uh, first baseman uh, because, you know, as you said, you kind of, with Manessis, it's a little bit redundant to get a guy who's right-handed and has some of those same issues. Um but that having been said, I was intrigued by what I saw from him at the major league level at 2022. He regressed in 2023. We're talking about a Jag here. He's, he's just a guy. And <laughs> you know, the Cardinals basically said, thanks, but no thanks. But when you're in rebuild mode, like this has worked for Washington, who knows, maybe he has a great spring. He starts hitting for some of that power where he was hitting high average in and, in, you know, 12 home runs at the major leagues and a little under half a season or whatever. And At that point, uh, the Nationals decide that uh, they can flip him for a minor, you know, the 22nd best prospect in their system or something. So when it doesn't cost any money, when it's a minor league deal, there's no downside. Um, You just got to be realistic about the expectations. So we'll cross him off the list of uh, guys to talk about. Next up is Nick Senzel. Uh, Senzel was at one point in time actually a really good prospect, believe it or not. He was a top-five pick out of Tennessee. I remember covering him pre-draft, and there was a lot of question about how high up the board he would go. There was some knocks on him for you know power, basically, being that he played a corner. Um, but while the power never came on, he is a versatile defender. He has played the corner outfield, corner infield at third base. He's played center field. He's a good athlete. You can kind of move him all over. He's going to be a utility option. Uh, on a good team. That's what he was for the Reds last year. We'll see if the Nats just decide to plop him right at third base. I mean, that's definitely something they could do. This cost them almost nothing. $2 million for Senzel, $1 million in incentives. So it's kind of a, I don't even want to call it a buy low because I don't know how much potential there is for a breakout, but it's just a, a cheap option who is actually pretty skilled from a physical trade standpoint. You don't go in the top five in the draft for no reason. He's got a chance with some incentives to get a little more. You know this, Toby. They wanted to bring Jamer Candelario back, but he got a ton of money. A year after they signed him for one in five mil, he got three years and $45 million from the Reds. I mean, so but by them going three for 45 here, Senzel became a guy that was going to leave, and he doesn't cost anything, and Washington just went with that option. Part of this, too, as you said, is they don't want to block anybody. So whether it's Lipscomb coming or Brady House coming, you know, they don't want to do a three-year deal with Jamer Candelario where he's guaranteed to have a spot as a veteran. So this is kind of the mode that they're in right now.
1: Yeah, and I think it's the right approach for now. I mean, maybe next offseason when some of the guys have gotten to the big league level and you kind of understand where you're at a little bit better in terms of when those guys will get to the big leagues, I think that's a time you can maybe do it. You could spend on pitching right now if you wanted to spend long-term on any position and be starting pitching. But yeah, I mean, I don't have an issue with this sort of a move with Senzel. Like you said, he can play all over the place. If you go back to his rookie season, if he can recapture some of that 256 batting average, 315 on base, 427 slug, he hasn't had a year like that since. So I wouldn't expect it, but you know, he has some potential. But at the same point, you know, it's a it's a cheap deal. I think it just fills a roster spot with a guy that can play third base every day if you need him to, or you can platoon him, or if you need him in the outfield. It's just another guy that can do a little bit of everything. So, again, I don't think any of these moves they've made so far or probably will make it all this offseason are going to be wow sort of moves. But I don't know that this is the offseason to do that anyways.
0: Yeah, his career OPS is 671 which is about 50 points below league average, uh, believe it or not. his career batting average speaking of Senzel is 240, you know that's not as far below league average as you'd expect in, in this era. having said that, um, it has been you know you got to go back three seasons to find him hitting 250 and he's never hit 260 in a year. So he's not going to hit for average. He's not gonna get on base necessarily. He doesn't really draw a ton of walks. And he's not going to have a high OPS. What he can do is, to your point, he can play a bunch of positions and he can hit some home runs. Uh, it's not crazy power. It's This isn't, you know, a 25-30 home run bat or anything like that. But if you played him 150 times, let's say, number one, you'd have a bad offense if you're playing him that often. But <laughs> if that were to happen, he would hit, I think, 23 or so home runs, you know, 24, 22 home runs. Like he does have that kind of power. So it's just a matter of like what they want to be offensively. Um, but last season, defensively, just to kind of give you an idea, he was a DH four times. He played second six times. He played right field 18 times. He played center field 18 times. He played left field 23 times. He played third base 57 times. So he started at third, second, DH, and in all three outfield spots. I don't know if the plan is that he is their, um, oh, what was the, uh, I've already forget, Chavis, you know, Michael Chavis kind of, or, or if he ends up being their starting third baseman, maybe they're just trying to bridge the gap, right, to to house, and then you can move him around if Brady gets off to a fast start, as you were kind of talking about. But regardless, another move where, you know, he, he is, he will be, Standing in the field, holding a glove, playing for the Nationals. No, that's kind of what we're talking about here. And I will say,
1: some of the guys that they were trotting out into the outfield, especially towards the end of the year, should not be playing outfield in the major leagues, right? I mean, like, uh, Ildemar Vargas is fine, but I'd rather have someone with a little bit more...
0: You can't play Manassas out
1: there ever again, hopefully. Yeah, so, you know, if nothing else, he's your utility guy. Even if he ends up playing more everyday third base, he's someone that you can put another infielder in to play third base and you can move him to the outfield and you feel a little more confident because I think that he can at least give you a competent outfielder. So I think that's – he's another utility guy for the roster. Who knows if he plays every day or not? But, I mean, it's it's just filling a roster spot, just honestly.
0: All right, last move they made was a Rule 5 draft pick, and I actually like this fit a lot. Uh, it's Nasim Nunez. Um, Nasim Nunez is a guy who, so he's a middle infielder. Let's start there. So he plays he can play short very well. He can play second base. He is not a good offensive player. He does not really hit, and I don't think he'll ever hit much at the major league level. However, while he has zero power, And doesn't hit very much. So you're like, all right, I'm out. He is a phenomenal defensive player and a sensational base runner. He is blazingly fast. He is excellent defensively. And he's got a big arm. This is a uh, late-inning, put-him-at-shortstop kind of guy, right? Now you have Abrams, and hopefully he comes on defensively and as a mainstay, you don't want to move him out of or around the infield. So maybe Nunez plays some second. Uh, he's got a good enough arm. I, I don't know why they couldn't also get him to start playing some third. I mean, the guy has everything you could possibly want defensively. But I saw him at the Futures game. I mean, This is a guy who had 70 steals and 86 attempts in a minor league season here. So there's even maybe, you know, some more learning and, and kind of improving to be done as a runner. You know, a lot of it he's is, is doing with speed. But he got left off the Marlins' forty-man roster as one of their higher-ranked prospects at one point in time, so they scooped him in the Rule Five draft. This is just explosiveness and twitch and athleticism. He's like five foot nine, maybe one hundred sixty pounds. He's a small guy. Again, I don't think he'll like. He could play one hundred sixty-two games. I don't think he'd hit 10 home runs at the major league level, even the way the balls are wound and the velocity of the pitch is coming in now. I, I just don't see that. Uh, but you got to keep him in the big leagues. He's 23. He's a rule five pick. How does that happen? I think he's just a, a bench player in the infield who will play wherever needed. They put him in, in a lot of late inning situations. Anytime you're down by a run and somebody gets on base, he's your base runner. Uh, and I kind of think that's, he's like a, a, just an awesome bench player that they were intrigued by because they did need to improve their infield defense a little bit and, and they need, did need an option behind Abrams. They didn't really have a shortstop, you know, Ildemar Vargas, as you talked about in the outfield, just playing him, you know, every once in a while at shortstop, it's not a particularly great defensive situation. So that's kind of what they were thinking here. I think with this rule five pick of a guy who was a Georgia high schooler drafted out of Georgia, where he, I had a reputation, you know, before the draft of being one of the best defensive shortstops out of high school in a couple of years. Yeah, and I
1: think this goes back to why it's important that Senzel can play in the outfield, right? If he were just an infielder, I think you're starting to get a logjam of guys that can play just in the infield. But Sinzel can play the outfield and like you said, you needed a backup behind CJ Abrams and it's not like this guy's going to play every day like you said. He's got to stay on the roster, so he's going to come in late inning situations, you want to steal a base. I mean, what better than to get a guy that stole 70 in 2022 and then stole 52 this year at Double-A? I mean, you can't get much better than that. So I I like bringing in a guy like that. He's going to be able to play second base or shortstop defensive replacement. He's not going to be someone that's the most exciting in terms of playing every day, hitting for power and showing you all types of superstar type potential, but you bring in a guy that can be a late inning replacement. I mean, Jeter Downs was on this roster for a, a decent portion of last year. And did you ever see Jeter Downs? Like, it seemed like I never saw Jeter Downs. So you have a 26-man roster. Doesn't mean all 26 men are going to get used all the time. I think having him there, though, as a late-inning replacement up the middle defensively to improve and also to steal some bags is a nice addition to the bench.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. I I think the Jeter Downs point's really good. Like, you just have to keep him in the show. You don't have to play him. Like, there's no requisite number of games he's got to appear in. So, if he plays, you know, once or twice a week, it's blowout either way. Get CJ off his feet. Get him at shortstop or, you know, put him at second. They really don't know who their second baseman is right now, by the way. I mean, I don't know what your thought is on second base, but we've been talking a lot about Senzel, you know, at third. Uh, well, I mean, Luis Garcia has been guaranteed nothing. Davy Martinez, maybe something we should bring up was on MLB Network. And I'm sure you saw that interview where he basically said, like, we've told him the job is not his coming into camp. Like, you're competing for the job. And if you're not the best second baseman, you're not going to be the starter. I'm paraphrasing. But uh, I do think, you know, if nothing else, there's enough games where they're down by a bunch. There's the occasional game where they're up by a bunch or or just, you know, even as a pinch runner, He'll play enough to justify him being the last guy on the roster and keeping him around. And is generally the case with the Rule 5 guys. You know, you get banged up over the course of the season. Whenever you're banged up, that's an injury list. It's not a, we'll gut through it, we'll play through it. You know, you just stash them on the shelf, give them a couple weeks to get right, and then bring them back. So uh, I think that uh, they won't have many problems getting through the season with him up top.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically something now where you got a bunch of guys that can play second base, and you're pushing Garcia. It's not his spot. It's not guaranteed. You, you know, he's going to have the the easiest way into winning that job, but that's not necessarily guaranteed. But you bring in a guy and you know Nunez, that you obviously have some clear plans for in terms of stealing bags. But this past year, his on-base percentage was 341. He's never going to hit for power. But, you know, if he's a a guy that takes over at second base because Garcia doesn't show you enough and he's just playing there sporadically or even a decent bit, just find a way to get on base. You're batting in the nine hole. Just find a way to get on and steal ahead of Abrams, right? I mean, so we'll see. But I think you've got a bunch of guys now that you can kind of rotate through. So Garcia obviously understands. Like last year, there weren't tons of guys. Like, you're not going to play Chavis over him. You're not going to play Jeter Downs over him. And then, obviously, we had all the stuff happen in the middle of the season. He gets sent down, all the stuff like that. So, hopefully, he's gotten the message. But even more so now, when he shows up to spring training, I mean, there's a bunch of guys that can play his position that I would say are a little more qualified than the guys they had on the roster last year. So, if he doesn't show up ready to roll, you can roll with one of these other guys, or hopefully, he does show up ready to go. And, you know, these guys are quality guys behind him. So, you know, I I think that, you know, you look around the infield shortstop set and that's pretty much it. And that's why I think that these sorts of moves are fine because, you know, if, if Lipscomb shows he's ready, he can play all of these positions around the infield, bring him up. You know, if Brady House at some point shows he needs to be in the big leagues, go ahead and do it. I think that's the smart way to go about it right now where you don't have to finagle anything. You don't have to worry about, oh, we're paying this guy too much. We can't, have him ride the pine. No, you just bring up your guys when they're ready. And I think that's a nice message to send for those guys too, to keep trying to press to get better every single day. And, you know, hopefully they'll get rewarded by being in the big league soon.
0: It's a great point. Yeah. When, when just as an example, when James Wood is ready to graduate and play right field at some point this season, like you swing lane over to left or play him in center and it's over, right? Either at that point, Let's say Stone Garrett's healthy and playing, like he gets less of an opportunity. Or if Victor Robles is the center fielder somehow, some way, like uh, then that's over, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter. In other words, uh, same with Dylan Cruz. Like when he's ready, he's the priority. There's nobody blocking him. And the same can be said in the infield. Let's say they go with their incumbents, you know, Luis Garcia at second, Carter Keyboom at third, and, and that's your opening day. Lineup and Nick Senzel and and um, well, we know Nunez will be on the bench, but you know you have a, a bench with some of the guys that they're bringing in here, and I'm not sure that'll be the case. I would imagine Senzel would would start, but point being, there's just nobody blocking uh, any of their players, and it's by design, and it's a smart thing to do going into a year where you're not sure when these guys are going to be ready. Ideally, it's a couple, you know, it's May before Dylan Cruz is coming up or, or June you know, before uh, we're seeing, you know, James Wood. But we don't know. I mean, it could be earlier. They could get off to a you know crazy tear and they think they're ready and there's a couple injuries. Remember how Juan Soto was in A-ball and then got bumped up and was in A for like a week and they had to call him up because of an injury to Michael Taylor and a couple other things going on in the system with outfielders at 19 years old. That was not the plan. It, the offseason before Soto debuted like right now, nobody was talking about that guy as a top prospect in the system, nobody. And on top of that, no one thought he was about to be in the majors that season. So you just don't know uh, for sure. But having said that uh, right now, things look kind of like they did at the end of the season, a lineup with something along the lines of Abrams and Thomas and Manessis and Ruiz up top, probably Garcia and Victor Robles and, uh, Carter Keyboom and Jake Alou all competing for different roles in time with Luis Garcia and now Nick Senzel uh, in the mix. Ildemaro Vargas will be back. Nunez will be on that bench. And for now, it looks like Riley Adams will be catcher number two. Nothing going on the pitching front to this point. So I guess to put a bow on this conversation, anything else you're monitoring or care a lot about Nats-wise in the days ahead? Yeah, we
1: can discuss it a little further on maybe some later pods, especially during spring training. But what do you think the chances are one of these top prospects makes the opening day roster? Is it something that's not really on your radar? Or is it something that, I mean, if one of these guys tears the cover off the ball in spring training, do you just go ahead and give him a spot? I don't see any
0: of their guys as being ready. Um, Let's think here. Cruz, that would be pretty stunning, right? Barely played in double-A and struggled for the record in double-A. I'm not worried about that at all. But I think he starts the season in double-A. James Wood, I would have said based on last year, you know, could have finished in triple-A just in terms of where he's played in the minor leagues and the success he's had from a power standpoint. Know with a great spring could be deemed ready, but the strikeout issues at the end of last season were a legit problem, right? I mean, he was striking out last year like forty percent of the time. So there's a swing adjustment, hopefully that's going on as we speak this off season, and you know some maybe some pitch recognition things. I know he's working hard on and grinding through, but I would say he'll need time in AAA. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I'd imagine he'd start in AAA unless they they finally want to put him and Cruz just together to start climbing and getting to know each other better, and then you could start them both at Double A, uh, and Wood and would, would kind of repeat where he'd been for so long. Um, Brady House finished in Double A, obviously. You know he's only twenty; wouldn't really make sense for him to be at the major league level. I mean, let, let's face it, too the only reason you would have one of these guys break camp at this point is if you think they're a true rookie of the year candidate so that you could get that extra draft pick and, because the team is going to be bad. So like you, you're just mistiming their clock essentially a little bit with where you are in your build. Like This is a wasted build season anyway in terms of burning a year with one of these players. So if you're doing that, you better get a first-round pick for it. And I don't know that they have a player that they think if they got him to the big leagues on opening day could be a rookie of the year caliber player this year. Not to say that when Cruz is a rookie or Woods a rookie, that won't be them. I just don't think they'd be ready in April to thrive at the major league level. Um, so long-winded way of saying, no, I don't think any of those guys cracked the roster. I mean, I'm hoping Cavalli's healthy enough that maybe, you know, there's a, a chance for him, but I haven't heard an update. That's probably unrealistic. You know, he probably in his rebuild rehab will need a bunch, you know, some minor league starts and some, a bunch of innings and things after camp, but that would be the only guy who's still prospect eligible that I could see. Maybe that wouldn't shock me if they were in the the big league roster on opening day.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think when you look at these guys, they're definitely going to be great, but I think there's still some seasoning they need to do in the minor leagues. I think they're, they're well on their way, and it might be something like you said, May, June, July. You're looking at you know, an outfield where you've got Cruz and Wood at Nationals Park, and maybe you're right there on the precipice of bringing Brady House, too. Who knows? But I don't think they're quite ready for opening day. And two, we'd be a little remiss if we didn't mention that the Nationals got royally screwed in the MLB draft lottery.
0: I know you're a big fan of oh, that. God. Oh, yeah, we should talk about that. Uh, we'll do that in a second. Real quick, because I was just thinking about it there after my answer. We should point out, like, I was thinking about the the big bats at the top of their system, but there are actually some guys, like, now that I think about it, I don't know if you know, he was in the majors, so it's not maybe a surprise, but, like, what if – I mean, J- Jackson Rutledge could make the, the major league rotation yeah. out yeah. of camp. You know, he's technically still a prospect. I think he's ranked – 12th or 13th via MLB pipeline um, DJ hers who had a really good Arizona fall league. I could see him making the, the big league team, you know, maybe out of the the pen, if they wanted to do that, they want him to start, I'm sure, but it'd be a little more surprising for him to be their fifth starter or something. But like, I could see him really early. Uh, maybe Cole Henry out of the bullpen could make the big league roster. It's so like some of those types of guys, those pitchers that are a little further along, um, you know, I, I'm interested to see what happens with Drew Millis. Now I just mentioned, you know, Adams is still around, but like Millis is major league ready, still a prospect. So that tier of guys, a little outside of their top of the system, uh, I could definitely see making some noise in the spring. Uh, As for the draft lottery, I hate it so much. Uh, I think it's terrible. Um, Basically, you know, you're dictating to teams on how they can and can't rebuild. And I just think that's ludicrous. This worked for the Cubs and the Astros and the Orioles and so many other teams to be bad by design. The worst thing you can be in sports is to be average or mediocre. So you're either great or be bad as a means to an end to to get good again. And you take teams like the Nationals and penalize them in this rebuild where now last year they picked second and this year they couldn't pick, you know, in the top nine and, and almost, decidedly before the, the lottery had knew they had the 10th pick. But what you're talking about even more so is that uh, we found out that they actually won the lottery, like they hit the jackpot, so to speak, and everything came up nats in a world where there was no rule, even if they were supposed, and I don't remember the record, but maybe they were supposed to like the seventh best, sixth best record, worst record or something in terms of chances to get the number one pick. They actually pulled the card for the number one pick in the lottery They weren't able to get it because they weren't eligible and they got the 10th pick. They had to redo it. So just a stupid system that annoys me to no end. I had a player text me after I tweeted how much I hate the draft lottery. Who's was like a a super plugged in smart guy in in major league baseball who plays and, you know, he was like, well, why, you know, he, the player perspective on this is not enough teams were trying, you know, teams were all rebuilding. Uh, You have to entice teams to spend because otherwise they just don't, and I understand why the Players Association wanted that. I'd rather have a salary cap floor, Tobe. Like, yeah. make teams spend. Fine. Don't penalize small and mid-market teams. Don't penalize rebuilding teams in the draft. It's ridiculous that the A's can be terrible every single year. I know no one's feeling bad for the A's ownership right now, but the, that fan base, you know, is going to lose them anyway. But they're watching this dog awful team, this dog water team every year, mm-hmm. and then they pick fifth, sixth, seventh. You know. Uh, Like, they never get the first or second pick. It's crazy. So that's my my soapbox.
1: Well, and I mean, how bad is the timing for the Nationals, right? They win the World Series in 2019 and don't get to parade it for a year, right, because of the COVID season in 2020. And then the Nationals go into their rebuild again. I mean, think back to when the Nationals had back-to-back number one picks, right? You end up with Strasburg and Harper, and that completely changed the trajectory of the franchise, Think about what they could have had. They could have had the number two pick in this past year's draft, Dylan Cruz, and had the number one overall pick. But no, it's right now that they decide to implement the draft lottery. So the Nationals, who would have been drafting first overall, and if that didn't even work, I saw that they even won the second overall pick in the draft. So (laughs) uh, they would have either been picking one or two, but now because they implement it, Right in the middle of the Nats' rebuild, they're picking 10th. So it's just bad luck for the Nationals. Luckily, they got a guy in Dylan Cruz last year who's a stud, and hopefully they can get someone this year at the 10th pick who's also a stud. But, man, the timing for the Nats on some of these things is just
0: just brutal. Yeah. By the way, it looks like, as of right now, the top of the draft board this year is super college-heavy, like almost all of the best players as ranked right now and, you know, whatever mock you'd be looking at or whatever are our uh, college players. So just something interesting um, to keep an eye on, which, which is only to say that, you know, the nationals probably would have gotten a guy that would move quickly and would time up well, right. Mm-hmm. With like Cruz and wood. And so it, it, it is, it's, it's frustrating. Uh, as news breaks over the course of the off season, as important things are happening, we will be here for you on Boston loose baseball. Shad at. As I like to say, Pat McAfee style to our producer, Darius Dameron for his hard work and all of you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Toby Altizer. I'm Grant Paulson saying so long for Boston loose baseball.